0: Hi, I'm Adam.
1: And I'm Nisan. We at Stories from the Eastern West are super excited to welcome you to our new mini-series, The Final Curtain.
0: This new series is our way of commemorating the 30th anniversary of what is sometimes called the transformation.
1: These were the social and political revolutions of 1989 that spread throughout the Eastern Bloc, as started in 1989 by Solidarność in Poland.
0: You'll be hearing personal accounts from people who watched the blocs collapse, who experienced the world around them change completely within just a few months.
1: Our producers traveled from Gdańsk to Bucharest, from Berlin to Kiev, to gather some of the best personal recollections from this intense and crazy period.
0: Hopefully we'll show you a visceral picture of what this sudden shift from communism to free market democracy meant to the inhabitants of the bloc's countries. What it was economically, socially, how culture changed, how people adapted to suddenly being free.
1: In our first episode our incredible guest will walk you from the late 1970s to 1989 and tell you what it took to take down the communist authorities in poland
0: coming up on the final curtain dramatic eyewitness accounts of fighting in bucharest police had forcefully beaten demonstrators in east berlin
2: Thousands of Czechoslovaks shaking their house keys. The protest movement is now too big to be controlled. Good evening, it is over in Poland.
1: Iron Curtain across
2: Europe torn down.
3: Jestem Zbigniew Bujak. I'm
2: Zbigniew Bujak, the former leader of Solidarność in the Warsaw region.
1: Bujak also had near legendary status as a notorious dissident. His incredible will, combined with his military training from national service, made him a real thorn in the side of the communist regime. He starts his tale for us in the late 1970s, just after he left the army and a few months after the strikes in the factory he had worked at were shut down by force.
0: But this time, the regime only went as far as arresting the strike leaders and most active protesters, beating them up and using water cannons and truncheons. This may sound bad, but compared to the bloodshed that had put an end to the previous strike in Gdańsk in December 1970, it seemed like perhaps the regime had started to change.
2: So, obviously, the 1970s, when we were coming of age, were much calmer. We didn't see mass arrests, and we didn't hear about people being severely punished for anti-regime activities. We had an awareness that the terror, the worst of it, was over. Okay, maybe we risked being kicked out of our jobs, but we could find more work, sooner or later.
3: So it's
2: only then, when a so-called thaw comes, that we know that nobody is going to kill us, covertly kill us. That allows this protest, this rebellion to become something public. Only then can we stand tall and united, go and strike, block a railway or gather on a square. But another crucial indicator, one that made a huge impression on us, was that in Russia, the place that had it the worst, people like Andrei Sakharov, Elena Bonner, were politically active. So, we were like, if they can do it, we can do it too. And it wasn't just a feeling. We were hearing about them on the BBC, Voice of America, and of course, Radio
3: Free Europe. the From
2: listening to those stations, we knew we were living in a backward-held-back country.
3: And
2: that immediately creates the growing ambition. Why? Why is it this way? Does it have to be this way? Enough is enough. Let's do something. And that image of a good, well organized and developing culture in the West played an instrumental
1: role. Zbigniew Bujak was only 22 when he began his anti regime activities. He started off by distributing a magazine called The Worker, it was published by the Workers' Defense Committee. An illegal intelligentsia driven organization that helped repressed workers and advised them on how to stand up for their rights.
2: We were distributing the worker everywhere we could during the morning break. Those 15 minutes started, and we'd grab the worker and run towards the canteens. And we did that quite openly. We presented ourselves, our organization, and handed out the magazine, and people were taking it. This way, we also made ourselves well known, even before the coming
3: strikes.
2: And then, when the general strike came, we were still a small operation, but the worker managed to reach all the striking departments of the factory. We handed out almost 2,000 copies. Also, we used to show up at the factory's open meetings and ask uncomfortable
3: questions.
2: The Secret Service believed we are regular agents, trained by the CIA. They thought they had to properly prepare to kick us out one day. And later on, I heard that when finally the Communist Party asked, why haven't you fired them?
3: The answer was,
2: they're too well known. Damn it, we're afraid it will trigger a strike. We need more time to prepare. But they only made it worse for themselves, because the longer they waited, the further the news about us spread across the factory. It gave us enough time to build even more support from co-workers.
0: Between 1978 and 1980, Buyak and his colleagues managed to win the recognition of many workers at the Ursus factory. People saw them advocating on behalf of their rights and openly asking for more transparency and respecting labour laws.
1: This was very important because in 1980, Another rise in consumer prices resulted in a wave of strikes across Poland. In just a few weeks, almost every major industrial group, shipyard and coal mine stopped working. And, for the first time ever, the communist regime was forced to negotiate.
0: Also, for the first time, many workers' demands were actually realized. The most important of all was the right to create free labor unions. This is how Solidarność could become a legal official entity. Never, throughout the entire Soviet bloc, had a free trade union ever been legally accepted before this moment. Solidarność started as a trade union and in the blink of an eye grew into a massive social movement, peaking at around 10 million members, a third of the total working age population of Poland.
1: Zbigniew Bujak started to sell up Solidarność back at his factory in Ursus and soon became the leader of the whole region. Reality was very different suddenly. Oppositionists could officially negotiate with the authorities, go on strike legally, and their previously omnipotent censorship was softened. It felt like real freedom might just be around the corner. So
3: we had the feeling that nadchodzi a big change here. But politically, Yes, we
2: definitely felt that there was a huge change looming. But as to the question of when Poland might come out of this as, let's say, a free country, we reckoned it would take at least 15 to 20 years. But we were young back then, so a 15 to 20 year long perspective didn't scare us at all. After all, it meant it would all happen during our lifetimes. But of course, there were many sceptics around us, people who weren't so sure about it all falling apart that quickly. The ones who knew the Soviet system better, who knew its inner workings, knew better how oppressive it was. They would be more conservative and push these predictions of eventual liberation even further into the future. And there were also people who believed it was never going to happen at all
0: their suspicions were right. The regime wasn't ready to crumble just yet.
1: Just over a year later, on December 13th, 1981, martial law was suddenly introduced. It was a massive crackdown on civic rights. Solidarność was delegalized, and all its leaders were arrested in the first few hours of martial law going into effect.
0: That night, Pujak was in Dańsk at a Solidarność meeting where they were voting in some new resolutions.
3: In English. Around 11 p.m. all the voting was over. We finished
2: the meeting and we could go back to our hotels or go home. We get to the station, we're standing at the train station and from there we could see one of the hotels, the Monopole Hotel, was being surrounded by the police. Our train was supposed to leave in another two hours, so we just stood there and watched.
3: And operation-wise,
2: they did a great job. There was only a few of us, only those who went to the train station that weren't arrested. The moment we realized what was going on, we decided to stay in Gdańsk and hide ourselves. For example, I spent the first few hours of martial law in a monastery, near the shipyard. After a week of hiding, I took a train back to Warsaw to continue my activities there.
3: Ja osobiście byłem przeświadczony, że ta sprawność służby bezpieczeństwa jest duża. Personally I was convinced that the
2: efficiency of the secret service was very high and that my days of conspiring, of working and hiding were numbered. I thought I'd be lucky to last 3 months. Wszyscy są przekonani,
3: że oni są bardzo sprawni.
2: But my friends would say everybody thinks they're good enough to catch you right away including you, but if we build a system of hiding you and they don't catch you and we know how to do it, we will do it,
3: then
2: this whole secret service and the whole totalitarian regime will be compromised. In short, your activities, mechanisms, methods of working will be adjusted to one goal only. That you don't let them catch
3: you. That's
2: the most crucial thing, because that will give all us oppositionists the motivation to carry on with their activities. And this was thought through brilliantly, because really, they couldn't catch me. It really made them look bad. We also had double agents among their ranks, you could say, I mean people who informed us about their inner workings. For example, we knew that the procedure of finding somebody, following him, and as they call it, realization, was a very precisely defined one. From the moment they found a trace of evidence, they'd say, aha, something's here, someone is behind this. Maybe it was him. Then that would trigger subsequent procedures, verifying who that was. And that lasted six weeks, their realization or arrest always took place in the sixth week. This is why the hiding procedure was designed so that after four weeks the hiding place had to be changed. We would assume that every time they would notice something, that there was some sort of observation. So their observation had to be interrupted. A change of apartment, a complete change of outfit because we knew they always follow the details, right? So we changed our look completely. I would shave my head bald, then grow it out again. I'd have a beard, then not have a beard. The point was to keep changing. What helped me a lot was that I have a very mundane face, no distinguishing features.
0: The system used to hide Bojak and a few others proved to work surprisingly well. Bojak was living, working and orchestrating anti-regime actions whilst hiding in Warsaw, right under the nose of the
1: enemy. For Bojak, it meant limiting his personal freedom to an extent even worse than actual imprisonment.
0: Bojak insists on not making a huge deal out of it, but he had some pretty low moments, and some frightening ones too.
3: Pracuje się te godzin, wraca do domu. To jest cykl właśnie po prostu fizycznej pracy.
2: So normally, working eight hours a day, there's a certain rhythm to it, physical work, and suddenly it's over. You sit in a tiny room, often no bigger than a prison cell, and the only thing you can do is read and write. During martial law, I can't remember the exact year, we acquired intel that the secret service had this idea that the moment they catch us, they would actually kill us, murder us and vanish us. Meaning, they would dissolve our bodies in hydrochloric acid. And this plan was already being accompanied by a propaganda campaign, which claimed that we were already abroad, out in the French Riviera, that we been spotted on the Canary
3: Islands.
2: We'd already heard
3: this fake news, so when
2: we heard about the reason behind it, and we knew it was a top-secret
3: plan, well, that just made our skin crawl. All this conspiring,
2: the need to make decisions, to constantly work for opportunities, all those questions, what do we do next, what do we do at all, every week, every day, It was a terrible burden.
3: Did I
2: order certain actions at the right time? Were these good actions? What do we do if they fail or they just went wrong? And then others had their opinions and complaints, like why didn't you do this? Why did you overlook that? So this tension, especially during martial law, this limbo where we didn't have the slightest idea of how it was supposed to end, how things would turn out, it was just unclear what could possibly happen. That was a very tough
3: situation. The moment I heard the three explosions that burst open the door,
2: because it was an anti-terrorist unit that came after me. Well, the first feeling I had was... relief. ...simply relief. Okay, they storm in. Okay, they're arresting me now, so I'm going to prison. And suddenly those questions, what to do and how to do it, that wasn't my problem anymore. I just have one task now. Serve my time with dignity. Don't testify, don't break down, don't let them scare me.
3: These are simple
2: things. We already knew these weren't Stalinist times. I wasn't in great danger, so I was simply at peace.
1: Buyek also told us he was readying himself for a long prison sentence three, four, Maybe even five years behind bars, but surprisingly, it soon turned out that the weakened regime politically couldn't afford to keep him or any other political prisoners locked up for that long. Thanks to internal and international tensions, in 1986, the Communist Party announced a great amnesty and released over
3: 200 dissidents. The moment it turned
2: out they were releasing me, after three months, after 100 days, that was when I had no doubt that the major breakthrough was inevitable. By that I mean I knew there was going to be an accord, and that was just a matter of time. Would it be immediate? Probably not, but in two, three, maybe even five years. But there was this strategic question we had, what would be the impulse that would bring both sides to the table?
3: We had no doubt that as long
2: as nothing changed in the propaganda, and in that system in Moscow, we would have to remain in this limbo for nobody knows how long.
0: So, they told one of their associates to keep a watch on Moscow. Read, listen and keep an eye on anything that happens. Whenever you notice anything, let us know.
2: And one day he sent a signal.
3: I, need, I to need to
2: meet, now, it's happened, it's actually happened, Gorbachev has proclaimed glasnost. We weren't exactly sure what glasnost means in Russian culture, but he said, it means that Gorbachev is allowing Russians to speak.
3: It means he's opened the
2: door just a crack, but be sure the Russians will put their foot in that door, and in a second they're going to rip it from its hinges."
1: And that's what happened, with the exception that it was the Poles who tore down the door first. With the aggravated conflict between Polish society and its communist authorities, Along with the dire economic situation, now that they could see there was little to no threat from the USSR, a new wave of anti government strikes spread across Poland.
0: In reaction to the forceful pacification of the first strike, almost every factory stopped working, paralyzing the entire country. The regime had to agree to negotiate.
1: And this was how the famous round table talks came about. <laughs>
2: We were aware that the moment we started the talks, the moment we sat at the table, there would be no walking away without an agreement. That would be impossible. Not only would that compromise the whole movement, but also us as individuals. We would have to step down immediately and go back to our private lives and let things shake out on their own. We would lose control of what happens. So I felt that many of those detailed regulations, agreements, they were not the important part of the whole thing. It was the fact that we had taken a certain path and that neither side could walk away from it.
0: And indeed, there was no turning back. The result of the talks was the country's first actual, non-fabricated election in over 50 years.
1: As part of the negotiations, two-thirds of the parliamentary seats were still reserved for the Communist Party. However, the Democratic opposition won the rest by a landslide, missing out on only one of the available seats. The peaceful revolution was a fact.
0: However, for Buyak, this moment of unprecedented success and freedom, a moment he had been longing for for so long, was also a moment of great disappointment.
3: I
2: started becoming aware that internal fights were starting among us within the opposition itself. Who is going to decide about what, etc. When it came to me and other workers in Solidarność, they didn't even want us at the round table talks. We were to be omitted.
3: They no
2: longer thought of us as important, active and influential leaders. Your role is over, they'd say. Now is the time for others. There's a time for fighters and a time for builders. It's the builders' turn now. What well, that meant to me, though I didn't realize it at the time, was that I was in fact witnessing a transition of power, from the leaders of Solidarność who were workers, to the Intelligentsia Driven Expert Group, and that Solidarność was suddenly being rendered a labour union only. Basically, we had fulfilled our historic role, and they were now saying, that'll be all, gents. Thanks."
1: Soon, Bujak found himself relegated to the fringes of politics. He won a seat in the next two parliamentary elections, but he failed to establish any serious significance in the new order.
0: On the other hand, he did remain a father figure to oppositionists around the former Eastern Bloc and became very busy as an advisor to countries going through a transformation similar to Poland's.
1: In 2011, he received the Polish state's highest distinction, the Order of Polonia Restituta.
0: This episode of The Final Curtain was produced for Culture PL and hosted by Nitzan Reisner and me, Adam Jaworski.
1: If you want to learn more about the story you just heard, see the show notes in your podcast app or go to the stories from the Eastern West website at sftew.com.
0: Remember, there's already another episode of The Final Curtain in our feed. It's a story of a photographer who happened to witness and chronicle almost all of the revolutions of 1989 and the 1990s. Make sure you check it out.
1: Until next time.
0: Bye.